Welcome to this month's special programming series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry, on ReachMD XM157. Nearly one quarter of American adults suffer from anxiety in any given year. This includes panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, PTSD, OCD, and a whole variety of phobias. What is a busy clinician to do? Welcome to our special segment on psychiatry. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Margaret Werenberg. An expert on the treatment of anxiety and depression, Dr. Werenberg also has extensive training and expertise in the neurobiology of psychological disorders. She is co-founder of the Reflex Delay Syndrome Research and Training Institutes, founded to promote research and treatment for this disorder affecting academic, social, and emotional functioning in children. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Werenberg. Thank you very much, Leslie. Now, most of our listeners are in primary care. Can you help us understand why so many of our patients are anxious? I think it's a combination of factors, and many of them won't be surprising ones. I think stress is an enormous factor in triggering anxiety. While some people are sort of genetically set up to be anxious, The way that we live our lives in the United States in particular, but also I think pretty much in any industrial country today, really contributes to it. Stress really can wear out your brain with interfering with sleep, in depleting your supplies of neurotransmitters. I think also in our very hectic lifestyles, we don't probably take good enough care of our bodies so that if we interfere with nutrition and interfere with not getting enough exercise, we tend to have a buildup of the kinds of biologic conditions that are going to make us more anxious. And I think just not getting enough time to replenish ourselves emotionally. I think that people get worn out, work and students with extracurricular activities, and we don't in our culture spend a lot of attention on replenishing. I think those are some of the factors that really exacerbate anxiety. What do we know about the neuroanatomy of anxiety? Well, actually, quite a lot. Research in the last several years that is allowing scientists to look at brain structure as well as brain function is really revealing that things that go on in your brain are very relevant to the kind of anxiety you experience. For example, if you have a heightened amount of norepinephrine causing sort of excess arousal in a part of the brain called the basal ganglia, people become very tense, very easy to trigger into anxiety and have the kind of physical tension-related illnesses that primary care doctors in particular see so much of, headache, bowel distress, gastrointestinal distress, and certainly insomnia and back pain are really contributed to by that level of tension. People who are prone to more social anxiety visibly on brain scans, you can see an enlarged amygdala, which makes them hypersensitive to emotions, particularly to their own feelings of anxiety. They feel an excessive sensitivity to their own anxiety that makes them pull back and not want to be in conditions that make them anxious. So there are other factors, but these are some of the ones that are very significant The other one that I think most people in the medical world have been aware of for a while is when brains are low on serotonin, you see a lot of anxiety as well as depression, a lot of negativity, 
low ability to respond to stress. You say in your book, Margaret, that we can use our brains to change our brains. What do you mean by that? Well, I can give you a really good example. Great. And somebody listening in the car or in their office could do it. If you just take a really nice deep breath and let it go, and then just slowly let it go again. You just use the executive decision-making power of your prefrontal cortex to override the autonomic nervous system and the medulla, which has kept your body and brain breathing without your thinking about it all day. By making a decision, you change your physiology. And by the same kind of process, you can make a decision to change your motor activity. You can change your behavior, in other words. You can also change your thoughts on purpose. And people with anxiety tend to generate a lot of negative automatic thoughts. And by making a conscious decision to interrupt the thinking and change it to a different thought, that's something you have to plan out ahead of time, you use your brain to change your brain. When you do those activities, breathing or behavior change or thinking, on purpose, when you do them differently and you do it on purpose repeatedly, you actually calm down the sort of overheated, anxious brain that generates a lot of tension and a lot of ruminative worry. Sounds like it's a technique worth doing for our patients. It is very worthwhile doing, and some of the techniques are very easy to teach. Some of them take more individualized attention. If you're just joining our discussion, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Margaret Werenberg. We are discussing her book, The Anxious Brain, The Neurobiological Basis of Anxiety Disorders and How to Effectively Treat Them. Now, Margaret, which methods work for which kinds of symptoms? There are so many different kinds of anxiety symptoms, it gets confusing. Well, it certainly does, and I think if you contemplate the symptoms in three groups of symptoms, the physical symptoms, the cognitive symptoms, the sort of mental habits people have, and the emotional symptoms, their mood and their fearfulness, you can sort of categorize the symptoms that work too. For example, for the people who are more panicky, where they're experiencing a lot of physical arousal, you want to use things that help them relax their bodies, breathing, relaxation, imagery, those kinds of techniques. Whereas with somebody who's a worrywart, sort of ruminatively going over negative thoughts over and over, you want to use cognitive behavioral therapy methods where you teach people how to interrupt their thinking. But for people who have a lot of the emotional sensitivity that goes with social anxiety, for example, you'd want to use a combination of skills training to make sure that person really knows how to conduct themselves in the situation that they are afraid to be in, and then do sort of gradual exposure to the feared situation so the person can learn that their new skills are working and that you increase then their sense of competence to perform. Now, thinking about a primary care doc sitting in the office with an anxious patient, can you help us run through a quick differential? How do you decide what kind of anxiety they may have? Well, I think for panic disorder, your patient will help you because they will say, I'm panicking. Um, It's the one disorder that I think people rarely mistake, you know, because they have this rapid heart rate and they have 
increased respiration, and they feel terrified. There are, however, some other symptoms that go with panic. Not every panic sufferer has every symptom. And I think people who have unexplainable dizziness, and I mean unexplainable by other medical tests, or who have a sense of unfamiliarity of the world around them, people will say, I just get these weird feelings like nothing looks familiar. That usually goes with panic as well. For people who are generalized anxiety disorder patients, you're going to hear more comments about physical aches and pains. My back hurts. I have stomach distress. I have irritable bowel. I have migraines. I have TMJ. I ha- and they'll hear a lot of ache and pain kinds of stuff. And it won't be as vague as, say, like with depression, people talk about just not feeling good. But with anxiety, people will talk about severe tension-related physical complaints. The socially anxious client, you're going to see more of what doctors sometimes call white coat anxiety, where the person's pulse rate or blood pressure just soars when they get into the doctor's office because that's a version of social anxiety. And that would be a good clue that you might want to look at that. Plus, the socially anxious person very often has flushing, you know, red blotches on their neck or on their face or even sweating when they are answering questions. So they're going to look visibly sort of embarrassed or distressed when you're talking to them. And that would be a good clue that the anxiety is social anxiety. Okay. How about PTSD and OCD? Any quick tips to help us with those? Yeah. PTSD, unfortunately, is an anxiety disorder that has so many other components that go with it. Usually nightmares are a huge component of PTSD, huge startle reflex, unexplainable sort of depression and anxiety because PTSD ends up usually encompassing many, many symptoms even though it's categorized as an anxiety disorder. And usually people know the trauma that caused it. Not always, but they often do. So you will hear people say, ever since, you know, fill in the blank with the trauma. And they will, I think, very often approach medical doctors for intense feelings of anxiety and and really terrible insomnia is often a feature of PTSD. OCD is such a challenging disorder because people will try to hide, frequently hide, that they've got this disorder. But the one thing that is very evident in OCD is that the quality of rituals, and doctors will see, for example, unexplainably chapped hands. I've seen clients' hands chapped to the wrist or up to the elbow, which is a sign of the hand-washing kind of OCD. Sometimes, though, the symptoms aren't so physically obvious, but if a client complains of OCD, you're going to find that reassurance doesn't work. And also, the kind of patient that comes to the doctor's office repeatedly, this is where primary care doctors are going to start thinking about anxiety, even though the patient doesn't raise it, is people who have concerns about health. The OCD client will appear almost irrationally in need of reassurance if the patient has a specific physical disorder that's triggering OCD. But the generalized anxiety disorder patient may show up repeatedly for a variety of disorders or for very minor problems that once the doctor says to the patient, oh, this isn't a big deal, the patient feels better, but then they're back again later. 
So you have two kinds of problems with generalized anxiety. One is that the worry is, oh, no, what if this symptom is actually something serious? So they come back for a minor problem. And the other is that they're being treated for tension-related illnesses, which are really significant and in need of treatment, but which the anxiety is keeping in place or making much worse. Well, thank you so much for sharing your ideas on the show with us today. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure to talk with you. We've been discussing the anxious brain with our guest today, Dr. Margaret Werenberg. I'm Dr. Leslie Lent. You've been listening to our special segment on psychiatry on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. Listen all month as ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, features a special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry.